Well, unless you're a fan of Louisiana State or, uh, or of Notre Dame football, you are in a period of rejoicing, is my guess, about this time of year as NCAA football has kicked off, NFL has kicked off, or if you just don't like football at all and you just don't care. But our nation right now is rejoicing with the return of football because it's exciting. And for whatever reason, we love, we love football. Whether it's Leonard's like, yeah, I love football. And um, even though he is a Cowboys fan, whatever. I'll forgive you. The Lord, the Lord will forgive you too. Um, but we're rejoicing because it's football season. It's exciting. We, for whatever reason, we just we love football, whether it's the high speed of the game or the big impacts or, uh, I don't know, whatever it is, just watching your favorite team try to make a run at the championship, whether it's a conference championship or Super Bowl or whatever the case may be. We are a nation that is rejoicing in the face of football. And as football fans, we are really good disciples. Did you know that? We are really good disciples as football fans. Not disciples of Jesus, necessarily but disciples of football and of football teams, right? To be a disciple is to be one that follows something or follows someone. We are great followers of football teams. We will wake up before the sun on a Saturday morning to fill our cars and our trucks with barbecue grills and all assortment of meats and drinks, and we'll show up to the game Hours to the parking lot outside of the the stadium, hours before kickoff to cook food and hang out with other people that love that team. And we'll spend hours just in fellowship and and having a good time together. And then we'll go into the stadium 45 minutes, an hour before actual kickoff so that we can get our seats that we have paid for in advance. So we can get there early. We can get comfortable, get ourselves spread out to enjoy three hours of football. Three hours including a halftime show and everything else. And for three hours, we're hardly even sitting in the seats that we paid good money for, right? You pay good money to stand on concrete for three hours. And for three hours, we're yelling and screaming until we've lost our voice and we're, we're you know, uh, pulling our hair out, those of us that have any left, when our team doesn't make a, a, a good play or def- defense doesn't make a stop or a receiver drops the ball or whatever the case might be. We are really good at rejoicing. We are really good at being disciples. Uh, in terms of football, in terms of sports in America. We are really good disciples in that way. And we rejoice when we are in the presence of the team, in the presence of the players, in the presence of other fans of the team. We rejoice when they rejoice. We mourn when they mourn. We, we give accolades to the coaches and the coaching staff and the players when they do what they're supposed to do. We're really good disciples when we rejoice in sports, not disciples of Jesus, but disciples of sport. But friends, the same ought to be true of our discipleship, of our following Jesus. There ought to be, there must be joy in our discipleship, in our following Jesus. We can rejoice because our rescuer has come. We ought to rejoice because our rescuer has come. And this morning in Matthew chapter 9... Verses 9 through 17, we're going to see that Jesus has come to redeem sinners, to rescue sinners who will rejoice in what he has done and to be his faithful followers. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 17. Open your Bibles there or, uh, or swipe your Bibles there or however you get to the text this morning. This is what uh, Matthew writes there. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. 
said earlier that, that in this text we find that disciples of Jesus can rejoice because the Rescuer is here, that Jesus has come to redeem sinners who will rejoice in what He has done and to be His faithful followers. And these two points, rejoicing or following Jesus, seeing that He's come to rescue sinners and rejoicing in His coming, are, are clear in the two different uh, sort of chunks of our passage today. First, in verses 9 through 13, we see that Jesus comes to rescue sinners. Jesus comes to rescue sinners. We see that in his call of Matthew, Jesus actively calls sinners. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. This call by Jesus to Matthew is interesting because it's not Matthew that's going to Jesus to ask for permission to be his follower, but it's Jesus going to Matthew to call him to follow him. Not at all unlike what Jesus did with Peter and Andrew, James and John, this, this uh, quartet of fishermen who knew Jesus and probably had been following Jesus somewhat informally, like Matthew probably was at this point. But Jesus goes to Peter, Andrew, James and John at the Sea of Galilee while they're uh, tending to their nets as fishermen. And he says to them, follow me. And what do they do? They leave their nets and they follow him. And now here he's going to Matthew, this tax collector, at his tax booth, at his place of employment. And he says, follow me. And Matthew leaves his tax booth and follows Jesus. The command that Jesus gives is very simple. Follow me. Follow me. That's all he says. He doesn't build a case for why these people should follow him. He doesn't try to convince Matthew as to why he should be one of Jesus' disciples. He just says, follow me. And this word follow is really interesting in the course of the New Testament because it's used almost exclusively in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And where it's used, it's almost always used in reference to following as a disciple the Messiah, the promised Savior of Israel and of mankind. Jesus uses it frequently, and it's used in reference to those of his disciples who are also following him. There's messianic overtones here in this word, follow me. And look at Matthew's response to what Jesus says to him. Verse 9, and he rose and followed him. The original, uh, uh, the, the way this is worded in the, in the Greek text is something like, and getting up, he followed him. Jesus says, follow me. Matthew gets up and he goes. This stands in stark contrast, I think, to what we see to those two disciples, those would-be disciples of Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. You remember first a scribe came to Jesus and said, um, said uh, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus responds to him, what? The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Showing to the scribe that his desire to follow Jesus is, he's over-eager in his desire to follow Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus without having counted the cost of discipleship. And then Jesus goes to another would-be disciple and says to him, follow me. And the disciple says, well, first let me go and bury my father, right? First, I've got some things I need to take care of before I can follow you. In those cases, we see one who is over-eager to follow Jesus, who wants to follow without having counted the cost. And we see another that is under-eager to follow Jesus, who wants to follow Jesus but needs to do some things first. But in the case of Peter, Andrew, James, and John in Matthew chapter 4, and in the case of Matthew here in Matthew chapter 9, those disciples, those, the, the close-knit group of 12 disciples that follow Jesus show just the right amount of eagerness to follow. Right? There's no question about what they're going to be called to do. There's no wondering about what it is that is going to come down the road as a follower of Jesus. There's no request to take care of some other business before they follow him. No, they just get up, they leave their stuff, and they follow him. And right after this, right after Jesus calls this sinner, Matthew, this tax collector, to be one of his disciples, in verses 10 through 13, we see Jesus readily associating with sinners. Readily associating with sinners. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The understanding is that this party that's happening is at Matthew's house. Okay, Matthew, tax collector, comes to follow Jesus. He uh, is excited about this decision, and so he throws a party. Invites Jesus over to his house. He has a big meal spread out, and Matthew invites a lot of his friends. Now, from the people that are present at this party, many scholars and biblical commentators think that Matthew is probably a pretty influential guy. He might have even been a supervisory tax collector of sorts. There may have been other tax collectors sort of under his purview, under his management. And so he's saying, hey, everybody, come to my house. And Matthew's the boss, so you don't say no to the boss, right? So you go to his house and you eat this meal with Jesus. Look who Jesus is surrounded by in this house. 
He's reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Now, these are two specific groups of, of people, but, that, but at the same time, the, those two groups are, are kind of a, a generic way of referring to all sorts of kinds of people. But let's look at who Matthew is talking about when he talks about tax collectors and sinners. He was himself a tax collector, and this is what Matthew would do. So t- today in the United States, we have a tax collecting agency that is part of our government called the IRS. And uh, I don't know if we have any IRS employees uh, here in the church today, but my guess is if we did, we would not have near the amount of frustration and, and I don't know, just general upset, uh, unsettledness about their occupation as the Jews would have of Matthew being a tax collector. Because in those days, Rome, while they controlled most of that, uh, all that area of Palestine, including Jerusalem, Rome did not employ tax collectors to collect taxes from the people. It costs too much money to have employees to collect taxes because then you've got to pay them too. So what Rome did instead was this ancient practice of called tax farming. And what they would do is they would put out a bid for people to, uh, or for individuals to, to put in a bid for how much in taxes they could collect in a certain year or a certain given amount of time. And so you can imagine how this, was, how this would go. Let's say the, the uh, Roman government has two individuals that come to them. And one of them says, uh, this year I can bring in for you $150,000 or whatever the Roman equivalent of the time, denarii, of, of taxes this year. 150,000 denarii of taxes. And the other one says, well, I can bring in 100,000 denarii of taxes. Well, which one do you think the Roman government is going to allow to collect taxes? Well, the one that's going to bring in more taxes, right? This is like Mary Kay and uh, Advocare and uh, all of those sort of like pyramid schemes, right? Where you recruit somebody to do work for you and then you reap the benefits, but you don't have to pay them anything. Okay, that's the same thing that's happening in this Roman tax farming system. And so Matthew was one of these guys who went to the Roman government and said, hey, I can collect this much in taxes for you this year. And they liked the number that he gave. And so they gave him a license to be able to collect taxes. And so he would set up shop on the side of the road, probably near a port or where some where there's a lot of um business travel, a lot of commerce coming through, and he would look at what people are transporting, and he would impose the tax, and he would collect the taxes from those people. And if they didn't want to pay the tax, or they couldn't pay the tax, he could confiscate their goods, and then sell them for money, and then give that money to Rome. But catch this, at the end of the year, if Matthew didn't collect or didn't send to Rome the amount of money that he was supposed to send, he was on the hook for what was left. So let's say he tells Rome that he could get for them 150,000 denarii, but he only collects 125. Well, he still owes Rome 25,000 denarii, okay, at the end of the year. So he's on the hook for that because he's signed a contract with him saying, I'll get you this much. But Matthew and all other tax collectors were also self-employed, right? We said that the government didn't pay them a salary. So they're not getting paid to do this work for the government. So how is it that they're going to make a profit and make ends meet? Well, by charging a little bit extra on top of the tax. Now, if you're a good tax collector, good in several ways, morally good and and good maybe just in terms of your job and job security, you would charge just enough over the allotted tax or the tax that was supposed to be due to make up your, you know, or to make your profit margin that you needed, right? To put food on the table, take care of your family, whatever. You would charge just enough more, but not too much to make people angry. But many tax collectors were, as you would uh, assume, very greedy. Okay? Like Zacchaeus, who we read about in Luke's gospel. Tax collectors who charged way more than what was necessary at the time so that they were living in luxury. They were sending what they needed to send to Rome. They're taking all the money from the people, and they're living in luxury. Matthew, though, remember, was also a Jew, a, a, a citizen of, of Israel. But Israel is occupied by Rome. So here's a Jew working for Rome of his own free accord and making money doing it. Can you understand why tax collectors were so hated? They were seen as traitors amongst their people because they were defrauding, many of them, their own people for the sake of their own well-being and for the profit of the Roman government. That's who these tax collectors were. Some of the group that's sitting at the table with Jesus. But there's also another group, right? Tax collectors and sinners. And this term sinners is a lot shorter to explain. This term sinners is just a term that's when used usually by the Pharisees in the New Testament or even referring to groups like this. Usually means not, is used not so much to, to describe uh, people who are like really immoral. Like these are not murderers and, and thieves and, and like the worst of the worst, the dregs of society. No, sinners is just kind of a, a general way to refer to anybody who didn't live up to the Pharisaic regulations that were imposed upon the people of Israel. 
These aren't horrible people. In fact, Jesus and his disciples were even counted among the quote-unquote sinners by the Pharisees because Jesus and his disciples uh, didn't fast ritually and didn't wash their hands ritually like the Pharisees said they had to. Neither of which, by the way, are laws required by Moses or in the Old Testament. So this phrase, tax collectors and sinners, this group of people that Jesus is reclining with, this is not a phrase that's, uh, that's used to describe so much a group of like unredeemable and immoral people, but rather people who are just looked down upon by the self-righteous party of the Pharisees in that day. These are everyday people who, yes, are sinful, as are we all. But these are people who are not so self-righteous as to assume that they have no sin. These are people who are sinners and who know they are sinners. These are people who are sinners and who are told regularly by the Pharisees that they are sinners. And Jesus is reclining with them at table. He's sharing a meal with them. And while he's there, the Pharisees get word of it. And they go and they ask Jesus' disciples this question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can almost hear the, 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 the bitterness in their voice when they say that phrase. Notice who they even ask the question to. They don't ask it to Jesus. They don't ask it to the person they really want the opinion from. They ask the question of his disciples. There's all sorts of reasons why they're asking the disciples this question and not Jesus. And we don't have time to go into that. But it's just, it's interesting at this point to note that they're not asking Jesus. They're asking uh, his followers. Jesus getting word of the question, whether he overhears it or whether the disciples come and say, hey, this is what the Pharisees are asking. He responds to their question. And he gives them this answer in verses 12 and 13. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So go and learn what this means. I I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. In this response, Jesus introduces two different groups of people and one individual. On the one hand, there's those who are healthy. right? This This is to imply spiritual health. There are those who are in in a spiritually good spot. And then there are those who are sick. That is, there are those who are in spiritual need, who have a spiritual sickness. And who's in the middle of those two? A doctor, a physician. And what does a doctor do? Well, a doctor makes sick people well, right? Healthy people don't have need of a doctor, but sick people do. When you're healthy, my guess is you don't uh, call your doctor and say, hey, I'd just like to stop in, say hi, see how you're doing, and you know, get a lollipop, that sort of thing, if your doctors still do that, right? You go, but you go to the doctor when you're sick, when you've got a cold or the flu or something's bothering you. That's when you go to a physician, but not when everything is going well. The answer that Jesus gives here is to say that these people that I'm sitting with, Jesus is saying these sinners, these tax collectors, are people in spiritual need. These are people who are spiritually sick. And I, like a doctor, like a physician, have what they need to be well. That's why I'm with them. That's why I'm with them. The healthy don't need a doctor. The sick do. That's why I'm here. Then he goes on further from there in verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And here Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament, from the prophet of Hosea in chapter 6, verse 6, where Hosea says, For I desire, this is God saying through Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call, uh, excuse me, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus, in going to the Pharisees and saying, Go and learn what this means, he's taking the position of teacher over those who are experts in the law. Catch what Jesus is doing. It would be like me walking into like a, the, a faculty lounge at UNM and saying, hey, y'all, listen up. This week, you've got some homework, and this is what you need to go. I'm not an expert in anything, okay? So if I went into a faculty lounge at UNM and started telling the faculty what to do, they would all look at me as, as the silly person that I was, right? But here, Jesus is doing that, but with authority, right? He's doing it as one who is more well-versed in the law and the prophets than the Pharisees. And he says, you who have misunderstood, go and understand what the prophet means when he says, God is our steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jesus is showing the Pharisees that they've, they've missed it. That in their desire to prove themselves holy, in their desire to prove themselves righteous in the face of all people in Israel, that they have neglected those who have real spiritual need that they have not shown steadfast love to those among them who need what they know, 
which is how to know God, how to be right with God. And they've neglected the spiritual need, the spiritual sickness of the people of Israel. And Jesus is saying, you've missed it. You've missed the point of the thing that you are supposed to be experts in. So go back to the drawing board and learn what it really means. Church, for us today, in seeing that Jesus comes to rescue sinners, we see that that we who follow Jesus as King, we who follow Jesus as Redeemer, as disciples of His, must also actively pursue and readily associate with sinners. That is to to say this, to be a follower of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, to, to claim the name of Christ as Christian, is to follow Him in creating relationships with people who are far from God. To create relationships with people who are far from God. This is the difference between being friendly and being caring. It's the difference between being polite and being loving. Being friendly in Christ is to say, well, you know, we're, we're a church, we're Christians, and, you know, anybody's welcome here. Anybody's welcome here. In fact, you're far from God, you're here on a Sunday morning, we're glad you're here. We're really glad you're here. You can even come sit next to me. I'll go get you a cup of coffee. That's being friendly. Church being caring is going after those people who are not coming to us on Sunday mornings who are far from God. The person in the cubicle next to you, your neighbor next door who you know that doesn't know Christ, your mother-in-law or your father-in-law or your uncle or your cousin who's just been arrested for the fifth time, who doesn't know Christ, going to them and saying, I know the one who can make you well. You have a spiritual need. I know the one who can fix it. His name is Jesus. Come with me to see him. Come know him. That's the difference between being friendly and and, and being caring. The difference between being polite and being loving. Church, we are called by Christ as his disciples. Not to be merely friendly and polite, but to be caring and to be loving. Especially to those and for those who are far from God. Throughout Christian history, especially in the 21st century, there's been this really kind of bad habit of Christians getting together in, in what I would call a bubble or a fishbowl and wanting to, to be unstained by the world. We have removed ourselves from the world. We've, we've created uh, Christian schools. Not that there's anything bad with that. Christian radio stations and, and Christian fellowship halls and Christian this and Christian that. And there's a Christian everything these days. But in doing so, we've pull, in pulling ourselves out of the world so as to be unstained by the world, we have removed from the world the very thing that the world needs most, which is Christ in it. One commentator says this. He says, We do well to consider substantially increasing our spiritual, evangelistic, and social outreach to minorities, to the homeless, to prostitutes and addicts and pushers, to gays and lesbians, to AIDS victims and the like. We do well to care and love those people in our society who are far from God. We do really well to do that. Because in so doing, we are being the hands and feet of Christ in that situation. But the commentator goes on. He says, We also do well to consider substantially increasing our spiritual, evangelistic, and social outreach to the more hidden outcasts among us. And there are such hidden outcasts among us. Church, these are divorcees, single parents, the elderly, white-collar alcoholics, And so on. This commentator says, We must get to know them as intimately as Jesus did. Sharing meals with them. Sharing life with them. Getting to know them on their terms. Because only close and trusted friends can share table fellowship over meals this way. Only close and trusted friends can really share with effectiveness the solution to the world's most pressing spiritual needs church to follow Jesus as one who comes to rescue sinners, we also likewise have to be brave. We have to be courageous. But in faithfulness to Christ, go out to the least, to the lost, to those who are far from God. Being more than just friendly, more than just polite, we've got to be loving. We've got to be caring to them. Why? Because Christ did. Because Christ did. And church also because that's who we were. That's who we were. We were lost. We were sinners. We were unredeemed apart from Christ. I look back on my life. I came to know Christ when I was young, when I was six years old. Danny and I were talking about this this week. And, and it, is to, it is to say, right, I did all of my sinning after I came to know Christ. Okay? Some people, some people do all, all of their good sinning before they come to know Christ. Good sinning. Um, 
I did all my good sinning after I came to know Christ, right? But left to my own, left to my own, I know my heart. I know what my heart wants. And on my own, my heart does not want Christ. On my own, I am a sinner and a tax collector in need of Jesus. In need of Jesus. There but by the grace of God go I, right? We can look out at the world and see those people who are far from God, who are hurting spiritually. And, and rather than looking at them with, with slanted eye or tilted head uh, or by avoiding them when we pass them on the street, we ought to know and we ought to remind ourselves, there but by the grace of God go I. And that person has spiritual sickness. That person is separated from Christ. They need to know the one who can make them well. And it's upon us, it's upon you, it's upon me to be loving, to be caring, to go after them even as Christ did. Jesus comes to rescue sinners. But then in verses 14 through 17, we see that rescued sinners, that faithful followers of Jesus, rejoice in the king's presence. They rejoice in the king's presence. Let's look at these verses again. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will tear away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, on the, uh, the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. I'll admit, this is one of the more, per, or has been one of the more perplexing passages of Scripture to me. Uh, these, these, these little mini parables that Jesus tells about the, the patch, the unshrunk patch, and the new wine and the old wineskins. Um, and so I want to unpack those for us as we move through here. But before we unpack those, let's look at the question that is asked of Jesus. Here, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus saying, why do we fast? Why do the Pharisees fast? That is, we, we go you know, days or periods of time without food, without water, denying ourselves certain things. Why do we do that? But you and your disciples, you don't fast. You eat every day. Every day you eat. These are, Jesus and his disciples are really good Baptists, right? You eat every day. You never fast. What's the deal? In order to understand the, what they're getting at in their question, it helps us to understand what is meant by fasting here. Okay? Now, today, we, we practice fasting as, um, uh, as a spiritual discipline of going a day or, or maybe two or three days, denying ourselves uh, certain food or drink or activity, whatever it might be, so that in the time that we would have spent doing those things, eating, drinking, playing ultimate frisbee, whatever it is you're fasting from, we might give that time to God, to seeking Him, to seeking His will for our lives, to hearing from Him, to studying His Word. We make more time in our day by fasting from things so that we can give that time to God, to, to hearing His voice in our lives, to discerning what it is that He is doing. Okay? And that's not a bad thing. Fasting's not a bad thing. And in Jesus' day, fasting was not a bad thing either. It was good to fast, to wait on the Lord, so to speak. But in the Old Testament and, and amongst Jews, even in Jesus' day, there was really only one prescribed fast by Moses. There's only one day of fasting, and that was the day before Yom Kippur, the day before the Day of Atonement, which is the day where sacrifices are made inside the Holy of Holies, uh, presented to God for the sins of all Israel. Okay, Big day in Israelite history. You don't know about Yom Kippur, go Google it this week. I trust Wikipedia has reliable information on that. Um, no, really, I mean, if you're going to mess something up, that's a big thing to mess up. Don't mess up Yom Kippur. Okay? So that was the only day of fasting that was required for Israel, was the day before the Day of Atonement. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees and others had taken up this practice of fasting two days every week, usually Monday and Thursday. And they would do this for several different reasons. The disciples of John, I believe, are doing it because as followers of John, they know what John is proclaiming, that, that the Messiah is coming, that the Christ is on his way. And so John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, are probably fasting on Monday and Thursday in preparation for the coming of Christ, in preparation for his arrival, knowing that a day is coming when the kingdom of God will be here on earth, that the king will be present. And so they're preparing for that day. The Pharisees, for completely other reasons. The Pharisees are fasting this way in very public ways to show just how righteous they are, to show how religious they are, how holy they are. And we know that Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 6, I believe, in the Sermon on the Mount, he kind, of, he kind of gets after the Pharisees for how they fast, 
right? Because when they fast, they put on sackcloth, like burlap clothes, and they cover their head in ashes, and they, they look really gloomy. So as to say, oh, I'm fasting, I'm, you know, <laughs> look at me, I'm fasting. You know, so people will look at them and be like, man, that dude's fasting. He's, he's, really, he's really religious. Man, look at all those ashes on him. That burlap looks pretty rough. Jesus says, don't fast that way. He says, when you fast, don't fast in such a way that you show it externally. Like Fast in such a way so that nobody sees or even knows that you're fasting. He says, get up in the morning and take a shower, right? Clean up, put on good clothes, put oil in your hair if you have any, and, and look good, right? So that people won't know that you're fasting. Because the purpose of fasting is not what people will see outside, but what, will God, what, what God will see is the position of your heart. But the Pharisees were not fasting that way. They were showing off how good they were at fasting. So John's disciples come to you and say, why aren't you fasting? Right? With the assumption that we're fasting because we're waiting for the king to come. And then Jesus responds to their question, not directly, but indirectly, through three different word pictures. The first word, first word picture, the first analogy he gives is this of, a, uh, of wedding, wedding guests and a bridegroom. Right? He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Here, Jesus is comparing himself to a bridegroom, to a groom at a wedding. Now, 2,000 years ago at a wedding, it wasn't the bride that was celebrated by the guests. It was the groom. That's just how it was. Different culture, different society, different sort of things, right? But they celebrated the groom and the groom's presence at the wedding. And so if the groom is at the wedding, everybody's happy. But if the groom is a no-show, everybody's mourning. Right? That is not a good wedding. But Jesus says the, the, the bridal guests, the, the guests of the wedding, can't mourn. They don't fast. They aren't sad when the bridegroom is present. When he's present, that's a good thing. The wedding's going to happen. Somebody's going to get married. Okay? It's going to be a good day. We're going to party for several days afterward. We celebrate. We rejoice when the bridegroom is here. And Jesus is comparing himself to that bridegroom. The very thing that John's disciples were looking for. He's the Christ who has come. He is the promise personified. He is God in the flesh, the King of all kings, Lord of all lords, among them. And so when the bridegroom is here at the wedding, what do we do? We celebrate. We don't wait. We don't put the food aside, put it in the fridge, wait for later. And so when, no, we eat, right? We drink. We have a good time. That's what Jesus is saying. Though Christ is even now in heaven with the Father, church, right? He died on the cross for our sins, was uh, raised again from the dead, and then ascended. And right now, he's at the right hand of the Father. The, the Son is not present with us physically now. The bridegroom is not present with us physically, but the bridegroom is still present with us, church. The bridegroom is present with us through the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures promise this. In John chapter 14, Verses 15 and 17, Jesus says this to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you, and for he dwells with you and will be with you, Jesus says. So though Jesus is not here physically, though the bridegroom is not here physically, he is here spiritually in the Holy Spirit, which dwells in the lives, lives of believers. Church, we do well to rejoice today in our salvation and in our knowing Christ because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, dwells in us. The bridegroom is present. The King is here. And so we don't mourn and fast and, 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 and cry that the, over the fact that He's not here because that's not true. He is here. So we rejoice in that. Going on, we see the Holy Spirit more than just being present with us. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, seals our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul writes this, In Christ, uh, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Church, if there's ever anything to, to rejoice in, it is in the fact that we have the down payment. We have the guarantee. We have the promise of the salvation that is to come in the Holy Spirit living in us. That is reason to rejoice, not reason to mourn. More than that, the kingdom of God, and as citizens of the kingdom of God, followers of Christ... The kingdom of God is marked by Holy Spirit-controlled lives. Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans 14, 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in what? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us is in us to help us to grow in righteousness, 
to enjoy spiritual peace with God and to know real joy. To know joy. Fourth, the Holy Spirit gives us power to abound in hope because Christ is the Messiah. Romans 15, verse 13, Paul again says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Church, we are not saved through faith in Christ to, to be a bunch of bumps on logs that are throwing pity parties all the time. We are saved by faith in Christ to rejoice, to rejoice in a new life, to rejoice in the forgiveness of sins that we have, to rejoice in knowing the God of the universe who has sent His Son to die for us. We have been saved to rejoice. So if you're here this morning and you're really bummed out because you're at church, I don't know what to tell you. This ought to be a place of rejoicing, a place of excitement. I'm telling this this image is just I talked about sports earlier in the introduction. This image has just been like on my mind and on my heart the last few weeks. Churches, evangelical Christian churches all around the world should on Sunday morning rival the kind of rejoicing that we see in places like CenturyLink Stadium in Seattle. Right? Like Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. The stuff, the kind of rejoicing, the kind of joy that is in this place should rival what happens in the pit when the Lobos are playing. Assuming they're having a good season, of course. Right? We show up early to games to get good seats because of the joy that is going to come in watching our teams perform and play. How much more joyful should we be on Sunday morning knowing that Christ is in us, the Holy Spirit lives within us, and we've been saved from sin, made right with God. We're no longer objects of His wrath, but now we are His sons. We are His children. We have been grafted into a place where we had no place. We ought to rejoice. Good night. Man, getting excited. I might preach in a minute. But seriously, how often do we not do we not just express just real joy in the fact that we're saved? The world might be a mess. Yeah. Our lives might not be great. Okay. So what? I'm saved. We're saved. Christ the King is here. The rescuer has come. Jesus gives a second analogy, a second word picture to describe why he and his disciples do not fast. So the first is because the, the king has come, right? The redeemer is here. The promised one has, has arrived. But secondly, the reason that he and his disciples don't fast, they don't mourn, mourn is because there in that time and, and in the age of the church, it's just it's not the right time for it. He gives these two images, one of an unshrunk patch and one of new wine and old wineskins. Now, the unshrunk patch, you're probably familiar with and how that works. And as Baptists, you probably don't understand the new wine and old wineskins and how that works. Okay, let's look at the patch first. There was, a, there was a day in which if you got a hole in your jeans, uh, your mom would sew a patch on there. Or my mom had iron-on patches that she would iron on on the back. Say, yeah, those are, those are easy. Those are good. These days, you don't patch holes in your pants. In fact, you buy pants with holes in them uh, so that you can make them bigger. Whatever. But, but in Jesus' day, right, they didn't have uh, Old Navy and Target and stuff to go buy new pants. Okay, so you... Clothes were expensive, and if you got a hole in your clothing, you patched it so you could wear it longer. Um, and as you all know, those of you who buy uh, cotton garments, when you wash it, it usually shrinks a little bit the first time. Okay? Well, what happens if you take a piece of similar cloth that hasn't been washed and dried, hasn't been shrunk, and you sew it onto the hole in your pants? Well, the pants aren't going to shrink, but the patch will, won't it? And when it shrinks, what happens? you got a bigger hole. Okay? So there's a, the reason you don't put a new patch on an old garment is because the new patch will shrink and you'll make the hole worse. You'll make the, you'll make the whole thing worse. It's just inappropriate to put a new patch on, on an old garment. At the same time, it's equally inappropriate to put new wine into old wineskins. What's new wine? Well, new wine is wine that hasn't fermented yet. Okay? In the fermentation process, wine creates gas, and gas expands. And so uh, in those days, wineskins were usually the, the, the stomach or, or a leather pouch of an an, uh, made from an animal uh, that was not still alive, obviously. And, uh, and you would pour the new, the new wine, the unfermented wine, into this uh, wineskin, this, uh, th- this container, this vessel for holding the wine. And as the wine would ferment and put off gases, uh, it, th- it would expand, and the, and the wineskin would expand with it. But the wineskin can only expand so far. And once it's no longer part of a living animal, it cannot contract again, okay? So it'll expand so much and then no more. Well, you don't drink all of that wine and then put new unfermented wine 
wine into a wineskin that's already been stretched. Why? Because when the new wine starts to ferment inside the old wineskin and stretches inside a vessel that's already been stretched as far as it can go, right? It pops. And now you don't have a wineskin and all your wine's on the floor. Okay? Jesus says it's equally inappropriate to put new wine into old wineskins for the same reason. That is to say this, these final two images, these two little mini parables about the patch and about the new wine and old wineskins is indicating that with Jesus' arrival, with his advent, his incarnation, something new is happening, which the old covenant ways cannot contain or constrain. The new covenant that Jesus will bring will bring with it new covenant living. It's not an altogether different kind of living from the Old Covenant, from the law of the Old Testament, but the kind of life that comes as a result of God's grace to sinners through Jesus. This kind of life leads to a different kind of living that the ritualistic constraints of the Old Covenant of the law are inappropriate for. The processes of ritual cleansing, of fasting and preparation, of, of uh, sacrificing for your sins day in and day out, year after year after year, are no longer appropriate in the presence of Christ. Why? Because the thing that you are fasting and waiting for, the person you are fasting and waiting for, is here. Because the things, the sins that you were sacrificing animals for day in, day out, year after year, dirty, stinky, bloody business that sin is... The the perfect sacrifice has been made. And so to go back and to fast in preparation for one who's already come is just silly. It's as silly as putting a a new patch, a patch of new cloth on an old garment. And to go back and offer ritual sacrifices day in and day out, year after year, being covered in blood and smelling like death all the time is inappropriate because the one who has paid the price perfectly and finally has come. This new life that we have in Christ, the the kind of kingdom living that Jesus brings, is a life of spiritual liberty from sin and freedom to live according to Christ's righteousness in us. We are made made righteous by Christ through our faith in Him. His righteousness becomes ours. We don't become righteous on our own, but He gives His righteousness to us so that in God's eyes, He sees not us and our sin, but He sees His Son's perfection in us. Because Christ has come, we can, we should celebrate and be joyful in the sure hope that Jesus gives us that we are saved from our sins and we should live in joyous obedience to God. The Christian life should be a joyous life. The church ought to be a place of great rejoicing because church, this is what we were designed for by God in creation. We're designed to love and worship our Creator freely and confidently and unashamedly. But in our sin, we have, we have made it impossible for us to do that. But God in His love and grace to us through sending His Son, Jesus Christ, has made a way to bridge that chasm, that we can do what we were created to do. Christ has restored that ability to us to rejoice in God, to give Him glory, to worship Him for who He is. To know Christ as Lord, to know Him as King, and to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, and yet to live a life of mourning and consternation as though the Messiah has not yet come, is as silly as doing the things that Jesus is talking about. It's as silly as putting unfermented wine into stale old wineskins. It's as silly as putting a patch of unshrunk cloth on a pair of pants that have already been washed and worn. Brothers and sisters, church, as followers of Jesus, even in the most difficult of times, even in the most difficult of times, we should be filled with joy. We should be filled with joy because we know the Savior and because we have the Holy Spirit of God residing in us. We should rejoice. We ought to be rejoicing. And if we are not rejoicing, if our lives are not marked by joy, something is desperately wrong. The reason we can do this, the reason we can rejoice, the reason we ought to rejoice is because we know where we came from. And we know where we would be if left to our own devices. We know what Christ has rescued us from. Yesterday, church, we were sinners and tax collectors. Far from God, in spiritual need. And yet Christ the King has come to our rescue. He's reclined at table with us so that we might know Him and in knowing Him, know the Father. 
be right with the Father and have reason for rejoicing. Even in a difficult, sin-filled world, we can rejoice because Christ the King has come and the Holy Spirit of God lives in us as a down payment, as a promise of our salvation. When I was a kid and it would uh, rain in New Mexico, uh, the, the water would, would, the rainwater would just stream down the street in the street gutter, right in front of the driveway, in front of the sidewalk of the house. And uh, because it doesn't rain here often, usually if it rains hard, you get a good little stream of water coming down that gutter. And uh, boys just being boys, you know, just want, I don't know, wanting to play in the water and in the rain, whatever. I would like to go out there and uh, find sticks and little rocks and things and try to build me a little dam in the gutter, try to dam up the rainwater. And, uh, and, and uh, as smart as I was as a child and, uh, and, and as skilled a builder as I was, I couldn't ever stop that water from flowing. I couldn't ever dam up that water. I couldn't ever find enough sticks or rocks to build it high enough. And even if I could, there's always holes all in and through the thing, right? Water's just finding its way. Water always finds a way, doesn't it? Water always finds a way. It's a reason that that's the reason that it's taken millions of pounds of concrete to build the Hoover Dam. Because water always finds a way. And it would be foolish, it would be silly to try to plug a hole, plug a leak in the Hoover Dam with bubble gum or with duct tape. Right? Because water always finds a way. Church, so ought to be the kind of joy, the kind of rejoicing that we have in Christ through the Holy Spirit in us. It ought to always find a way regardless of how we try to dam it up, regardless of how we try to shove it away, or regardless of how much we we want to be focused on the things that are hard in life, we ought to always find reason to to have joy and to rejoice in knowing Christ and in being saved. There ought to be nothing in our lives that can stop us from rejoicing. Not physical sickness, not financial difficulty, not wars in the world, not riots in the streets. Nothing should stop us from rejoicing in the fact that we are saved and have been sealed. By Christ and the Holy Spirit for salvation. It doesn't mean that we, it doesn't mean that we don't we don't mourn sin in our world. It doesn't mean that we aren't broken by it. It doesn't mean that 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 we don't recognize sadness when it's there or tragedy when it's there. But it does mean that we always know that there is a. I hate to use the the term silver lining, but for lack of a better term, there's always something good. In it, right? Christ is always good. The Holy Spirit in us is a good thing. And He's not ever leaving for the true believer, the one trusting in Jesus. That Holy Spirit is there and it never leaves. So you always have a source of joy in your life. The psalmist David, in Psalm 51, a psalm of of lament, a psalm of repentance of his sin with Bathsheba, the adultery he committed and, and murder of having sent her, her husband off to be at the front line of the war, having him killed. When confronted with his sin, David does the right thing. He mourns his sin, right? He repents of his sin. He is sorry over his sin. That's a good thing. But catch what David says in Psalm 51, verses 10 through 15. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Here's a man broken by the sin that he's committed in his life. Mourning, repenting, lamenting, the sin that he's committed. And yet he knows that in the Lord there is joy in salvation. So whether it's our sin in our own lives or, or just the results of living in a sinful, broken world, there ought to be joy in salvation. And if you're not experiencing joy in salvation today, one of two things is the case. Either one, you've never trusted Christ as Savior. You can't have joy in salvation that you don't have. Let today be the day that you trust Christ for salvation for the first time. In a room this big with this many people, I'm not so dumb. I might be dumb, but I'm not stupid. So dumb is to think that there's not a one person in here that hasn't yet given their life to Christ. There's a good chance that there's someone in this room today that has not yet given their life to Christ, has not trusted Him as King and Redeemer. Do that today. Give your life to Christ today. 
not so that you can have a better day today, but so that you can have a better life now and in eternity. And not because God's going to fix all the things in your life immediately, not because God's going to make you healthy and wealthy and happy, but because God wants to restore your soul and give you joy in salvation in knowing that you are now no longer an enemy of God, but now you are a child of the King. The other reason you may not have joy in your salvation today is because for maybe some reason you've neglected your salvation. Not to say you've lost it, not to say that, that you no longer are saved, no longer are right with God. Once you are saved, once you truly and, and sincerely express faith and trust in Christ, you are saved permanently and forever. But you can lose the joy in your salvation when you neglect it. Paul says we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? Salvation is a, a process, not something that we do, but something that God does in us. But we are responsible to respond to what to God is doing in us. And so maybe a reason you don't have joy in salvation today, you don't have joy as a believer in Christ, is because you've not been tending to your walk with Christ. You've, you've allowed that relationship to, to fall into neglect, to go to the back burner. And you need to restore that relationship. You need to come to God on bended knee, face on the floor, and say, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me so that I can teach transgressors your ways and so that through me, through the joy in me, sinners might return to you. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Christian, maybe today that needs to be your prayer. Maybe that needs to be your response today. Maybe you need to come and and kneel at this altar today in in just a moment appear at these steps and just say, God, I, I don't have joy in salvation. And I know that's on me. I've neglected my relationship with you. I've neglected my time in the word. I've neglected my time in prayer. God restored me joy of salvation so that, so that I can teach transgressors your ways. So that I can praise you in my life. And so that sinners in seeing me praise you, even knowing everything that's going on in my life, they might come to you for the same sort of joy that they see in me. In a moment, uh, Pastor Danny and the praise team are going to come and, and lead us in a time of response through singing. And this is a text, church, worth responding to today. So if you're here and you're not a believer and you want to trust Christ for salvation for the first time today, you, you know that He is God in the flesh, that He lived the perfect life, that you could not live on your own, the sinless life that you cannot live, that he, you know that He died in your place on the cross and that He rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death and Satan for all time. But you've never trusted in Him for that. You've never rested your life on the promise of salvation through faith in Jesus. You come and do that today during the time of response. Christian, if you're here today and you've lost the joy that is in your salvation, whether it's by your own doing or by circumstances in life, whatever it is, I invite you to come this morning and pray with me or pray with Pastor Bruce or just pray on your own up here that God would return to you the joy of your salvation. And not just for your own good, but so that other people might see it in you and want the same. To know that you, a sick person, a spiritually sick person, have found the doctor, right? That found the one that, you can, that can make you well, that can make them well. That your life might be a testimony to the goodness, the grace, the mercy of God to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Danny, you and the praise team come. And then church, we're going to all respond together this morning. Father God.